What's going on, everybody? I'm today's host on Adventures in DevOps, Will Button, and joining me in the co-host seat today is Jonathan Hall. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And our guest today, Brian Scanlon. Brian, how you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks a million. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on and chatting with us. You want to give our listeners a little um, overview of your background, what you do, and that kind of stuff? Sure. So I guess my background is that I'm a Unix systems administrator who has eventually ended up through engineering management and through staying a long time at one company, ended up um, working as a principal engineer at a place called Intercom, which is a software as a service business based out of Dublin, Ireland. So Intercom, what we do is like those, those little chat bubbles that pop up on websites. So we think that we're one of the better ones of those. And folks use them on their websites to communicate with their customers, do support, outreach, um, engage. And we got a few other products like uh, help sites and like article uh, sites for support and things like product tours and things like that. So we're the company is about 10 years old, uh, reasonably well established, coming close to kind of about a thousand people in size. And most of our engineering is done in Dublin and in London as well, with a few other people dotted around the world as well. So my role there is I work primarily with our backend folks in areas like cloud infrastructure, operations, cost management, performance, availability. And, you know, I've been around so long that a lot of my job is telling people to watch out for all the skeletons I've buried, (laughs) kind of magic incantations or things to avoid and lessons we've learned over the last few years. Kind of uh, Were they skeletons at the time you buried them? or? or, or (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No comment. There's like... (laughs) Pending the statute of limitations to answer that one. Right on. That so that right into my pick later on. So stay tuned because my pick is going to be related to that that topic. Oh, sweet. Yes. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com/podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, DevChat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that. I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So y'all do at Intercom a lot of uh, real-time chat and communication. So I could imagine like on-call, reliability, uptime are all key metrics not only for you internally, but for customers that you're hoping will renew their subscription, right? 
Yeah. Now, you know, Intercom isn't a mission critical service. It's not like a nuclear power reactor or a bank or whatever, but it's certainly true that we have uh, customers all around the world relying on Intercom to to support their customers and increasingly doing a lot of real-time stuff on top of us. So we've got a huge food delivery businesses built on top of Intercom, as well as like increasingly larger uh, say financial businesses and others. And so expectations have risen over the last few years, you know, since I joined. And reliability, it's its always been important to us, but we've gone through moments of crisis as well. So I think in 2015, we had a few years of database instability, going through growing pains, and kind of we had to put a lot of work in in just kind of keeping things afloat and online and we've ended up doing a lot of like re-architecting and kind of putting in solid work there to like get us to a better place and all like so all of this kind of put together has meant that like we've had to mature not just our architecture but our processes and how we kind of monitor keep things alive and stuff and i think we've ended up in a relatively good place and so you know our architecture hasn't changed fundamentally we're still running a ruby on rails monolith but we we now got like a fundamentally uh, stronger data store um, fundamentals, but also we've done what I think is a pretty good job in building like on-call and instant response and doing it in a way to really optimize for great outcomes. And what we think great outcomes are, are that engineers aren't just being completely overrun with pointless alerts and that we've got dozens of engineers on call to keep Intercom online and that instant response is chaotic and we're not communicating with our customers and stuff. And so we've kind of put a few things in place that, you know, we're pretty proud of and kind of want to spread the word of because I, and a big motivation, personal motivation for me is that I've worked in some pretty crummy places when it comes to on-call and, <laughs> uh, and, and stuff. And, you know, pr- prior to Intercom, I worked in Amazon and I was in like a pretty busy area of Amazon when it came to on-call and infrastructure management and supporting services and supporting customers. Don't get me wrong, like I loved on-call. I ended up being a call leader in Amazon, which is where you kind of run outages. Um, so anytime the retail website or Kindle or parts of AWS went down, I was uh, would hop on and kind of help out and help organize the response there. And like, and my my career grew a lot through like doing that work and through helping out on availability work and responding to not just responding but learning from these uh, incidents but ultimately this built like up like a lot of like PTSD that when I was in intercom it's like okay we got to we got to do a better job here and not build something that like throws humans at the problem of like making computers work and so that was kind of my personal motivation for like doing a great job at intercom not just for our own like retention and kind of business outcomes, but because I just really wanted to work somewhere that was good to do on call in. <laughs> right. So y'all have, I was reading your article and this blew me away because I'd never heard of it. You have a volunteer on call team. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the big things that we try to do and it ends up working uh, and it's still working. I think like we've probably got it running now for the last five years or so. And there are a few things in there that I think are unique to Intercom in that I don't think you can just copy and paste this kind of model into your own or into every organization. But I am aware of other places having figured out this kind of pattern themselves as well. I think Airbnb might have had a similar one, maybe at some stage. I'm not sure if it's happening anymore, but I've had some chats with other places as well. And the whole idea of the volunteer on-call idea 
is that, you know, when I looked at who was on call in, at Intercom, um, I guess when we started off, we we had what was kind of resembling almost like a DevOps, like you build it, you run it kind of model. And uh, but it meant that some teams would end up running a bunch of infrastructure. Like it just so happens that there's that their features that they were building just ran a load of Elasticsearch clusters or a bunch of MySQL tables or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And then other teams just had nothing. <laughs> like they just had a <laughs> bunch of bunch of front end stuff. And so the difference between going on call or being being a member of one team versus another was uh, one team got arduous 24 by 7 you're going to get paged a lot you have to manually maintain this elastic search fleet which is getting completely hammered and then a lot of other teams it was like they were theoretically on call but they weren't in practice they they didn't have the same seriousness involved with it they weren't getting paged all the time and also when i looked at the sheer number of people on on call at intercom like say our engineering org was below 100 people at the time and it was probably like seven, eight people on call doing 24 by seven, like technically at that moment in time. And I remember there was at Amazon, there was large parts of say, like the entirety of S3 was being run by on-call engineers who were smaller in number at any one period in time. And S3 is a pretty big service. So there was a mismatch there. It's like, why are we putting on like loads of people on call and kind of not doing a great job of it when it you can have far fewer people <clears throat> run a service that is like world, world scale or global scale like S3. So the unevenness, it wasn't just bad for the people who were happened to be on the teams with all of the infrastructure. It was also bad for fungibility and our ability to move people around teams, the ability to like reorg effectively. It's like there's some people who just don't like doing on-call or aren't set up uh, well to do on-call or who have personal stuff going on. It's like if you've got a, a newborn kid or maybe you've just done a load of it for years and you just don't want to do that for a while. These are kind of constraints on the business of organizing who can work on what team. And and so that's a kind of barrier. And so there was an unevenness. We weren't compensating people for on-call at the time as well, which wasn't great. And when we looked at the quality of the, the kind of issues and the quality of the alarms firing, it also wasn't great. It was like there was a high tolerance for noisy alarms and people getting woken up in the middle of the night and maybe not the right level of follow-up on alarms and stuff like that. So the idea of, vol- of a volunteer team would be to like kind of get rid of the problem of having to move people between real teams and just have them organize themselves in the way for whatever suits the business and hopefully get a bunch of people who are volunteer and would opt in to doing on-call for all of Intercom and just get the number of people doing on-call down from whatever, six or seven people down to one individual with support and compensated and kind of well set up uh, so that we just reduce the kind of horrible burden of on-call from across the organization. Right on. So I had a recent conversation about Mm on-call and the person asking the question, their main concern was, how do we train every on-call engineer to know every product that they're on call for so that they can fix everything that might go wrong. And it sounds to me like you've taken a different approach, which I think is what I would do too, that, that you don't, you don't, not every per- on-call person needs to have intimate understanding of every system. Uh, but would you talk about that? How, what level of, of knowledge would you have? If you're this one on-call guy for all of Intercom, how much detailed knowledge do you need to have of all the subsystems? Yeah, so we kind of cheat to a certain extent, <laughs> 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 which, you know, cheats are good. 
Intercom's architecture is largely a Ruby on Rails monolith. And like we, we have a, one of our technical strategies that we are quite deliberate about. Like we're a very product oriented company. We, we call our engineers product engineers, our founders are product. It's just a lot of real like product oriented, uh, approach to how we organize our company or organize our work. And what this means is like being technically conservative is that we've ended up with this Rails monolith that we, we think we operated pretty well. And we've invested in it and we've made it like we've made working in it far easier than working with other services. Like we've, we've kind of gone through different phases of this. Like when I joined, we had problems scaling our Rails monolith and it was sitting there and we started building out new services to, to, to build out new features. And but over time, we got better at Rails and Ruby and Rails kind of came along, got a lot better as well, at like building out scale, uh, scalable patterns, you know, just places like GitHub and Shopify and stuff investing in that kind of ecosystem. And we matured our monolith and it never went away. But then we realized that teams who were building stuff outside of the monolith, it was bad. <laughs> it just wasn't great. <laughs> Whereas you, when you built in the monolith, you got all these patterns and alarms out of the box and observability. And so what's happened over time is uh, most of the stuff we built uh, just looks the same. It's the same patterns used over and over. We got we make heavy use of AWS. We make and um, like a, a bunch a bunch of services in AWS that we will use by default, uh, like wherever we can. And so if you go on call for Intercom, most of the alarms are far. It looks they're all the same. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's all pretty much like oh, there's a queue over here. That's maybe it says error or Will Robinson error, and then that's it. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> but it's definitely not the like we have few kind of bespoke environments, and it's not like every team has like completely different technology stacks and stuff like that. So I think that's definitely enables the ability to like navigate between us rel- relatively quickly. And so when you're on call for all of Intercom, you're not going to see ten completely different things break every single time. You know, we've been based in the cloud from day one, heavy use of AWS services, like I mentioned. And so we've built in a lot of resilience due to like using AWS services the way they should be and been pretty aggressive on ephemeral hosts and auto scaling and all just things like that. So, so all of this supports that when stuff breaks, it tends to be stuff that's actually broken, but tends to break in a bunch of ways that are kind of common and frequent. So, so that's the cheat code. Now, what we do as well is. Every alarm that fires, there must be a runbook associated with it. That runbook needs to be kind of reviewed and maintained. And we we keep a quality bar by by opening like the highest severity issue for every single paging alarm that goes off out of ours. And the engineer follow tries to follow the runbook, figure things out, you know, see see how far they can get. But also the guidance that we give to the engineers is you're pretty much acting as like first aid. This is our uh, first response. You know, we don't expect you to be able to fix everything. And if the runbook doesn't work or you can't kind of make progress, you get stuck or the runbook doesn't exist or it's it's just bad and doesn't really show you any way of kind of getting anywhere, they, then we strongly encourage the engineer to escalate. And so there's always an escalation path. And so the idea is that they fit, they're supported, not just with materials, and that the alarms are high quality, we review them, and but they can bring in help. And so we've got a 24 by 7 incident commander as well, who effectively acts as a manager at that time. And their job is to like make an assessment, like who do we bring in? Do we And we do kind of best effort escalations around the company, depending on like the judgment around like what the incident commander assesses is like the right thing to do for between the business and who to bring in and stuff. It's often the case, though, that if something breaks, say, 
in the evening time after work or whatever. There might be a few people online, uh, just like on Slack or whatever. I might be prone to doing this kind of thing myself from time to time. And so if there's an instant commander, like trying to triage something, working with the on-call engineer, they might just see who's online. Anyone here? Just like ping them on Slack and see, can you kind of get some folks online? But otherwise, it's like we would try and escalate through the team's manager of whose stuff it broke and try and like build a working group there. But point is, like, it's best effort from that from that step on, but we'll use whatever we have to hand uh, to kind of try and resolve it. But the main thing is that the on-call engineer who kind of get hit the most, to be honest, you know, there's far more of these alarms that go off than incidents um, or the things that require incident management. So they, but they feel supported and I'm not, they're not on the hook to run the whole thing. And so that ends up being making the, the job of like getting volunteers in, uh, in, in place not too bad. And people don't feel like they have to understand absolutely every single part of Intercom to do the job. We provide support and a bit of training and stuff like that. But it's making sure that people feel uh, that they they don't have to know everything to go on call and kind of know that a bit of ad hoc work and figuring things out uh, is perfectly fine. Nice. So how often do you, does your on-call person get uh, paged uh, these days? That's a great question. We do track it. I could try and pull it up right now. <laughs> um, it's, in like, <laughs> it's in probably small numbers per week. So we're probably talking about, say, maybe five pages a week. There's some weeks when nothing happens. There's some weeks when maybe something's just noisy, something's like something new, some new features rolled out or like something's been used in a way that it wasn't before. Or suddenly a database is under a bit of pressure. So we do go through kind of periods of where you might get a noisy shift where something is kind of going off a lot. But in those cases, we are uh, pretty aggressive addressing them, certainly during office hours. And if there's alarms that aren't worth responding to will will be pretty aggressive by turning them off and stuff like that as well. Um, but the steady state is like certainly low numbers of escalations. We do take escalations through our customer support team as well. So if they notice that something in particular is something bad is happening with the service, you know, they, uh, they can escalate on behalf of customers as well. And so that that can happen from time to time where, you know, it mightn't even be changes that we're making. It's like maybe some customer gets stuck with something or we've broken one thing for one customer. We can kind of get dragged into those kind of events as well but yeah overall it's certainly not noisy we do frequently talk about like our, our bar for like what an alarm is it's like would you wake somebody at 3 a.m on a saturday morning uh, for for this but in practice thankfully it's rarely that things actually do break at 3 a.m saturday morning for us we've got the the luxury of being largely b2b in terms of where our traffic kind of comes from so you know our daily peak is uh, it's actually passed right now you know it's like it happens mostly during like emea office hours and kind of gets quieter during the the evening our time and we're relatively quiet during the weekends as well and also our developers are almost all in europe as well so and you know to be honest that's when a lot of stuff breaks <laughs> like when we're pushing changes to our systems and stuff so so the a lot of our alarms a lot of our things that would fire tend to to fire during kind of relatively sociable kind of hours as well so we're not kind of hit too hard about people being woken out of bed in the middle of the night though it does happen i'm curious if you can divulge this what mm-hmm. kind of compensation do you offer for people who are on call because I, I worked with a company a couple of years ago and their compensation was every time you take an on-call shift you get a free delivery meal like that's that's kind of i mean Maybe that's cool, but that, that that's pretty low hourly rate compensation. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. if that motivates your employees, you know, go for it. But yeah, you know, it wouldn't motivate me. <laughs> yeah, it it is it is tough, and I definitely appreciate that it can be hard in some companies. And some companies, you know, they consider it to be part of the contract, the, the employment mm. contract. So it's kind of baked in to to the role. But I guess we wanted to do it on a volunteer basis, so we wanted to kind of make a reward that was, I guess, it was meaningful and that you know you'd notice it but also we didn't want to make it such that it was addictive right. <laughs> we, we want people to like do on call for maybe like six months uh be on, be on the virtual team for like a few shifts like get out of it and not like just stick plodding with it because the, the income drop from moving on for us would, would be a drag to them and I've, I've experienced that in, in other places of where, say, I was working on a team which just did, uh, 12 by seven kind of on call. And, but then some teams who were, were co-located with were doing 24 by seven and they had a significant, uh, and like generous benefit from that in, in terms of a salary increase. And it was a real barrier to try and get them to move teams because <laughs> like, uh, you'd approach them and they'd say like, Hey, so, you know, I'm going to lose 10% of my salary if I join your team. Uh, can you fix this? And I was like, not really. <laughs> it's like, I can give you your life back. <laughs> like, and so that was something I was kind of going into it as well of when we're picking a number, we just didn't want it to be addictive or, or leads to behaviors where people would hang around for like the wrong reasons as such. So we ended up picking a nice round number. So round numbers are nice. So it ends up being a thousand euros, thousand sterling, and I think $1,250 for one week of 24 by 7 on call. And you get paid that regardless of whether you get paged or not. SLA is like 15 minutes. You know, you need to be fully capable of being at a laptop and doing work and being able to stay there doing work for 15 minutes. So our guidance will be, you know, you can walk to the shops or bring your kids outside, but you probably shouldn't go to a swimming pool or get on a flight <laughs> or, uh, yeah. you know, go nightclubbing <laughs> or something. So, drunk. yeah, it's <laughs> even know, at home it, on the sofa. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's going to be a healthy week. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But, and so it was, you know, it's, so that's not a life changing amount of money, but you know, you'll, you can treat yourself at the end of the month. If you've done a shift, you'll like notice that in your, in your pay packet and you can bring your significant other out for a very fancy meal or, you know, treat the family or something like that. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not going to change your life. You're not going to save for a house with it, but it's something you can do just to kind of feel the appreciation of it. We, another thing we do is we make sure that people aren't overly stressed. If someone's having a crummy shift, we tend to, like, well, first of all, we tell people like, look, you're doing a 24 by seven shift. Your, your job isn't to get like completely worn out. And also if there's stuff you you need to do, like during that week, uh, people can cover, people can cover like different things at different times just to make sure that you're not, you're able to do the shift and not like put your life completely on hold. Mm -hmm. But then also if people are having a bad shift, we tend to like just swap them out. Like we'll say like, okay, you've, you've had a, a few bad nights. Like we'll just put somebody else on for a night or two or whatever. So we don't want it to be. I think adding that kind of flexibility, even though like one person is technically on call for that week, that flexibility as well just means that, you know, you're not going to get completely wrecked by the end of the week and that you've got a chance of uh, having a life and like being able to do the rest of your job as needed. Um, but also like we're pretty 
good in Intercom by making sure that people generally aren't burnt out and are in a reasonably healthy place. And so we will make sure that people can take days off or time to do or whatever, so that if they're having a tough week and maybe the on-call is part of that, you know, give them a long weekend or something like that to kind of get over it. So it is part of like about how we generally think about uh, sustainable engineering at Intercom, and it's not just something we do in the the on-call team itself. Mm-hmm. What do you do if if uh, if you if you sort of do that tag team in midweek? How does that affect the compensation? We try and just balance it out. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if 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 you're on for the week and say somebody you, you get swapped out, and then maybe you might cover somebody else's shift for a couple of days, or like okay. just kind of make it up that way. When you get into like fractional amounts of compensation for on-call so shifts, it just gets messy. <laughs> And I think the other thing we do is mm-hmm. Intercom is pretty good about taking company breaks. So say like over the over Christmas, we tend to like close the whole company down. And so it's basically mm-hmm. just support and on call that are there kind of checking things. And in those cases, we'll we'll do shorter shifts, but give the full thousand euro compensation because you know it's the time when you're supposed to be relaxing and the rest of the company is off. And so we'll be just like a little bit more generous during those times. So you, it might be a thousand euro for like three or four days or something like that and then we'll we'll break it up over the team so that everyone gets a decent crack at the holidays wow that's impressive how much thought and detail you've put into the on-call process making it what sounds like almost a pleasant experience for the on-call engineer yeah there's some other nice things as well it's it is it's a role that is appreciated by leadership it's not something that just like is hidden and so our CEO knows the the internal name of the <laughs> of the, the the on-call team. A name I don't like, but I also don't like changing names of things. So I'll just uh, we're sticking with it. <laughs> and so you know we get great sh- shout-outs from CEO and from you know our, our CTO and leaders and stuff like that. And in addition, it's a frequent thing to see on say promotion documents and. We, we celebrate people's contributions like every year on their, their anniversary of joining Intercom as well. And like, if, if you've been part of the on-call team, like it's something that we do call out explicitly. And like, so their managers are aware of it. They'll, they'll call it out. And it's something that we help and try and be like something that is part of people's growth at Intercom. You know, they get to feel like they're an owner. They get to feel closer to customers. They're fixing real stuff. Hopefully they'll learn some stuff as well as they go along. We try and kind of teach each other about how we think about different incidents and alarms and stuff like that so we keep it like relatively collaborative and we do occasional kind of learning sessions as well like we're we're building a new product we've got a big new release and we'll get like the people who who are building out those things to kind of show up to the on-call team and kind of talk through it just in case something weird goes wrong but I think the the nicer thing about that is like it's a learning experience for the people who are on the on-call team that they get this opportunity to kind of have these deep dives, which may not happen kind of in your your normal kind of day-to-day role. Um, right. So that's those things are like big part of success as well. I think if we were hidden and people weren't seeing progression, it might be seen as a nuisance. But the fact that it is it is appreciated, people see the kind of success of it and it's invested in and kind of recognized all the way up to CEO. And um, that's something that like we're we're like just proud of and we'll do things like talk about it externally and stuff like that to make sure that people know we're we're, we're proud of it and uh, that kind of keeps it kind of something that people are excited to do. Like w- one of the problems that we do have on the team is there's too many people who want to get into the on-call team and we want to give people like a reasonable shift of of shifts and have people kind of sustainably walk through the team. And so, yeah, it's like 
common for us to have people on waiting lists and people will return to do on-call shifts uh, and rejoin the team and stuff like that. So that that all, it's a good, very good problem to have. It's certainly not, not what we expected necessarily going into this. Yeah, I mean, I'm ready to sign up and I don't even work for you. <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs> uh, right off that, so how do, you, how do you decide who gets in? Is there a screening process or is there a, a lottery? What do you do? Battle Royale. <laughs> Yeah, we, it's yeah, it's not a there's not a strict criteria. I have had people approach me in their first few weeks of joining Intercom, and they've asked, "Can they join?" And I've been a little cautious about that. <laughs> I don't think it's a great thing. Sorry, Will, you had to wait at least a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so. When it comes down to it, it's like when the person thinks they're comfortable. But I want to expose them to like maybe some of the sessions where we we walk through the alarms, like expose them to the the alarms, expose them to the things that happen and kind of make sure they're comfortable with it. So it's never a case of no, you can't join the team. It's more like, okay, you should start attending the sessions and start reading all of the issues and kind of like engage with the team, like beyond the Slack channels and do stuff. And then you tell us when you're ready, like our expectations that you're going to be able to triage and run these kind of issues uh, yourself. So you will know (laughs) when you're ready, when you're looking at this stuff. And so that's worked fine. And we haven't had problems. I guess it, it is a bit of an optimistic <laughs> view of the world. But yeah, we've gotten away with it so far. So we haven't had, so we haven't put in like strict criteria around time at Intercom or maybe different parts of Intercom uh, that you've had to work with or anything like that or seniority. You know, we do see that different people with different experiences get on kind of easier. If you've had operational experiences in other places with that have had mature instant response uh, and uh, operation setups, you know, people just kind of slot in and that uh, that tends to go really, really well. Uh, other folks who who it's, who they're, it's new to, uh, they might need more support and maybe uh, just a few nudges along the way. But we haven't seen, nothing's gone terribly wrong like, in our time. And I think that's partially down to the quality of things like the run books and kind of support we put in place. But also, like I said, we, we are playing on cheat codes. All of our stuff looks the same. So tends to be that people can make progress regardless of their level of experience and stuff like that. So, so yeah, we've had like everything from junior engineers to, I guess, senior folks like myself. Hey, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I mean, it seems like a lot of things these days are kind of pushing us more toward productivity, right? We install VS Code extensions. We do CICD. We kind of get this stuff off our plate, automate as much as we can, and move quickly. And one of the tools that I tell people to get is something like Raygun. Uh, Do you want to just explain real quick how Raygun can help with the productivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's several fold. I like to think of Reagan as um, almost being like a full time engineer on your team that's keeping an eye on things, and is able to report the important faults or performance bottlenecks so that you aren't guessing. Um, and so that's one element. But then to that point where we store as all of the data we possibly can uh, on the context of the error or performance issue, so that. You know, we integrate with source control systems. You can jump into our APM and get method-level timing details with the source code right beside it. So if you're looking at it going, why is this page so slow? You know, um, you can usually just eyeball the code right there and then. So speeding everything up, which I think is really important with, you know, our industry is under so much pressure right now. You know, um, know, we've got to try and get people being more efficient because we're not going to have a whole lot more people suddenly. Right. Absolutely. And I I just, I love that idea. I've done plenty of optimizations myself, right? And having an APM tool that will actually say, yeah, uh, this is the slow code, right? 
So instead of me trying to guess or look at it and go, oh, do I have an N plus one query here? Yeah, it just tells me where the problem is. And that's really powerful in something like Raygun or... Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Iron Man. And, and you know, the, the, the idea is that I would love a virtual Jarvis that's just going, hey, there's this <laughs> thing. Do you want me to go fix this? Do you want me to solve yeah. that? It's like, that, that's what we need to get to. Yep, absolutely. Well, if you want uh, the next best thing, go to raygun.com. Yeah, it's not Jarvis, but it, it will tell you where the problem is so you can go fix it. You can get a free trial right now if you want. It's raygun.com. How many engineers do you have in the entire organization? Just to get a sense say, for like the ratio of on-call to not on-call. Yeah, I think it's above 100, maybe 200 or something like that. Okay. And yeah, the team is probably around six or seven people who who are on, on active on the team. We have a technical program manager who also runs our availability program. And I work very closely with her on like day-to-day design and implementation and kind of making sure things are working well. And so the, I guess the six people are six, six or seven people who are uh, in the, in the, the rota, they, they then kind of make sure that they're all covering each other. And then there's a handful of people like myself who are able to swap in just in case people are stuck or we can't find cover and things like that. But generally, we want people to get in and get out and maybe come back to us in a year or two and let people kind of get into the system when whenever they want. So. Do you have a backup plan? I mean, supposing you're on call and something comes up, you have to go to the hospital or something. What system is in place to, to make sure that those calls get answered? Yeah, th- that's where we've got the 24-7 instant commander. And so okay. it's similarly a compensated role, but it's a far smaller pool of people. And so the instant commander role, they're there to run incidents like during office hours as well. If if anything major breaks, you know, it's I think it's a reasonably well understood industry role of uh, somebody who takes charge of the situation, make sure that we've got the right people on, on a call. We've got the right focus on mitigating customer impact or communicating internally, externally appropriate. So all of those responsibilities, um, which would come out of like regular incident commander design, I think. But also as part of that role, you're on 24 by 7 and you are the like escalation point for problems from strike, whether it's uh, or strike is the name of the the internal name for the on call team. I didn't want to say it, but I just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah they're there uh, as like effectively the the manager of of that person at the time. So if something comes up, they page the instant commander, and instant commander can then bring in uh, somebody else. And like there's always the likes of myself who will generally respond to a page. And so I guess it's the the way it would go. I don't think it's happened, or maybe we've just been able to cover it. Like it's happened during office hours, and we've been able to figure it out when people are online in Slack. But the way it would go is if if you suddenly become not available, page in the commander, and then they'll find somebody, and so you don't worry about it mm-hmm. as uh, the on-call engineer. What do you do after an incident? What kind of postmortem process or or after or retrospective do you do to to hopefully reduce the number of incidents in the future? Yeah. So so for 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 every alarm that fires, we we open a high severity issue, and teams are pretty responsive to them as well in that we just have a low tolerance for low quality alarms. So, so that's the majority of the work. But for incidents, like we do have classifications for what incidents are, for bringing, like we have a fairly well-oiled machine at this point of when a, a certain type of problem, like customer-facing problem occurs on our site or in our services or something just happening that we know is not good. We've got a customer support, like I guess tech lead role that kind of kicks in as well. So we, we've spin up 
uh, customer support resources and make sure that they get processes around like communicating to our customers who write in about problems and kind of they prepare for for that. We've got an incident commander. The incident commander is basically in charge of making sure that communication happens around making sure the event is kind of well run uh, and good focus and resolution. And then when all of it is wrapped up, we write an incident report and uh, we try and review the incident reports like within a week or two of the event. So it's a weekly meeting, again, run by the uh, TPM in av- availability and it's facilitated and you know the the whole approach of it is is to learn so it's uh not nec- it's it's we try and run a, a blameless postmortem as such and walk through the kind of interesting parts of the event uh but try and remove a bunch of biases and apply kind of broader learnings to what happens and make sure that we're uh, seeing things from the eyes of the operators who are doing things at the time and so um so we've gotten reasonably well versed at getting real value, I guess, out of our incidents in like not just the the mechanics of like writing a report and presenting it and getting people to talk about it and stuff like that. We're really digging into like the valuable and kind of interesting parts of it. And so not just going after just the technical root causes, which are good and you know, you should fix stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> making sure that we're looking at the the experiences of people because no one shows up to work to do a bad job, ship some bad code or whatever. It's like we really want to figure out the what were the inputs into causing like what were the system failures, I guess, that kind of cause things to go the way that we that no one kind of expected. And so over time it's it's led to, I think like good learnings, but also good learnings put into practice in terms of like making sure our deployment processes are fairly robust. Like we put a lot of emphasis on making sure that we got really, really fast deployments and we run like very, very solid CI CD pipelines and stuff like that. But and we but that means we put a lot of responsibility on our engineers to like fit into this system and we gotta make sure they got the right uh, protections and and feedback and expectations of the system that they understand it when they're they're working in it so we've we've learned a lot and kind of put in uh, things in place but we've also identified like areas of say like a team not own like who own an area but actually don't understand it very well it's some legacy system that they've inherited or whatever or like fundamentally uh, like maybe something that's starting to fall apart due to increased usage or whatever and we've gotten like real architectural and system improvements out of our instant review uh, process we one of the mechanisms that we do for this is uh, we use like availability risks and so we use a few different risk registers uh, there's like security risks availability risks uh, velocity risks and we kind of kind of cost opportunity register as well the point of these things are to like try and identify areas of risk to the business on these like different axes and uh, for availability risks like they they generally related to something that happened, something that broke, or maybe it's something that we kind of foresee could be a, a risk. And then they're allocated to teams. We kind of track the life cycle of these availability risks. And we celebrate when teams fix these things, like they know they own these things. They kind of agree with us on the relative severity, like how frequent these things are going to fire, what likely impact the customers. So we take our time to try and like understand the kind of risk in the system, whether on, on any of these kind of axes. And then when teams fix them or mitigate them or lower the kind of risk uh, on them, they're they're like part of real planned work that teams do. We celebrate it. We make sure that the organization knows that we're reducing fundamental risk in our system. And that's something that teams feel proud of. And it's like that they can see something breaking and then all the way 
walking, getting through the system and being fixed uh, fundamentally through like availability risks that are, are tracked organizationally. And I think the system works pretty well. It's kind of scaling so far. We got, you know, I think availability and security are two ones where risks look really obvious that you need to fix and people are kind of interested in doing them. We have kind of less success with with velocity and costs, it's kind of like maybe a bit more intangible or maybe not everyone kind of thinks about them. But yeah, it's it, it's the, the way we kind of mechanize uh, the learnings being put into fixes in our environment. And it's been working pretty well for us. Why do you think the on-call team is so popular? Why do you have this waiting list? Is it because you're, you're offering too much money? <laughs> <laughs> I really hope it's not. Uh, the maybe way. I should ask Will. Why do you want to go to this team, Will? <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, I'll I'll jump in there because I think that's that's a really cool point. I've spent the last three decades on call in in all kinds of environments, and including one environment where the system we were running was for trauma patients seeking life life saving healthcare. So we had minutes to respond and bring systems back up and. During long, prolonged outages, we would have a member from the customer service team who would call out a number while we're on the, the incident call. And that number represented the number of people in the United States who couldn't receive life-saving medical care because we were down. So I've done um, on-call in a whole bunch of different scenarios. And the level of maturity that Brian's describing here in their on-call process is really, really impressive. Things like a a clear escalation process, you know, and that the on-call engineer isn't pressured with the expectation of you've got to fix this, whether it's networking, whether you got to build your own Linux kernel or whether you got to go write C++ live on the server, you know, that expectation's not there. It's, you know, the expectation is do this, try to restore service. Here's your sandbox window. And when that time window expires, here's the steps you take to escalate this. So it takes a lot of pressure off of being the on-call engineer, knowing that you've got a company approved policy and procedure to follow and then hearing from him the support from the businesses because I worked in other places where we had that level of documentation and plan but then the business side of the organization hadn't agreed or signed off on that and so they come in with a completely different set of expectations despite your policy so all of those are just really really impressive and mature features for a company to have yeah, I, I think we are fortunate in where we are, like what our business is. Like it's a B2B SaaS. We, it's a business built by people who, who've run other businesses. We're building on top of stuff like the cloud and Ruby on Rails. And, you know, these things are, aren't exactly cutting edge now, but when Intercom started, say 10 years ago, 11 years ago, these were like new ways of doing these things. And I think life is easier. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I, and I think the standards as well are kind of applied in tech industry, you know, I just think the, the, ex, uh, the explosion in we're, see, we're seeing kind of some of the, some negatives at the moment in terms of the amount of, uh, valuations and things like that in the market. But just the sheer, uh, growth in the tech industry has led to, I think, a remarkable improvement in standards in many places around how, how work is done, uh, expectations of engineers, like, like it's even just hiring is so hard that you need to treat people well <laughs> in many places. And so 
I think, I think, you know, maybe I'm just sounding old, but things were harder in the old days. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think we really are building on top of better foundations or many places are building on, on top of better foundations. And we've got higher expectations about how we work and how teams work with each other and what, like even just the DevOps movement and like what work can be and understanding like how to run systems. These are all things that weren't kind of as clear uh, or like we're still kind of forming many, many years ago. And I think at Intercom, we've just been building on top of that and bringing in our own kind of our own expectations about how, like what Intercom is, how we work with each other. Like these aren't just things that we do in this like on-call part of the world. I think we have similar kind of values or sing- similar approaches to like other parts of how we organize ourselves at Intercom. So, you know, we brought in our own values and what like work kind of means to us as well. And like the kind of qualities that we wanted in it. So, you know, I've definitely worked in places where this, and I've chatted with people who are like interested in improving their own call setups. And it's like I mentioned at the start, you can't copy and paste this, like what we do perfectly into any environment. It could, like there's, there's definitely barriers in many places. You can have regulatory problems. There's just culture issues. You can have, say, compensation problems with, with how contracts are set up and with different types of roles. Like it, it's, it's not always easy, but what I do think is possible is to like simply not tolerate, <laughs> but like really, really poor on call things. I think you can apply continuous improvements to environments here and not put humans just at the mercy of these robots trying to control our lives. That in, in most places, I think the humans are the harder part to kind of get working in the first place, to hire, to kind of uh, retain. And I think there's better business outcomes for um, reversing things and applying applying a reasonable quality bar to like when you page people, to when you alarm and making sure that your alarms are well set up and like actually reflect customer impact and something that's actionable by a person as opposed to, well, we slapped a bunch of CPU alarms on this Redis cluster many, many years ago because of some problem and no one knows why it keeps on firing. So, you know, I think uh, that the aspiring to a higher quality is definitely <laughs> uh, something I think most places can do and simply not tolerate like low quality on call because like I know it's seriously affected me at different times. It's, it doesn't leave to great family life. It, uh, and as much as I enjoy on call and like have built a career to a certain extent around like being great at troubleshooting and knowing how, like doing a good job of setting up on call and helping out people and stuff. I, it's not something I think everyone should do. In fact, I think, I think no one <laughs> should go through what I've, what I've gone through with many on call places. So yeah, it's, that's the kind of main message I want to get out to people is like, just don't tolerate garbage and on call and try and uh, see how you can kind of apply continuous improvements in the environments to make it so that it's more human centric rather than machine centric. Also, most alarms are complete rubbish. You can turn off almost <laughs> at least 50% of alarms in most environments and cha- like yeah. there'll be no uh, bad impact whatsoever. It's, you have to figure out which 50% though. Right. What was your inspiration when, when developing this? And I, I'm, I'm assuming this was built up over the course of several years and you got inspiration from many different places, but just broadly speaking, speaking where did you get these the ideas for this for a single person on call for for a week at a time you know how, how did you come up with these different ideas yeah it's a great question like we we wrote uh, we have a way of working at intercom of where we're reasonably deliberate around articulating the problems we want to solve and so we just had conversations about on call we knew it was a problem and so we we did what we do in the product space where we we write a document together we get like a working group we articulate 
a bunch of things that we think are problematic. And then, and so then we got a, like our problem statement to solve. And so those kind of problems that came up were like one, on-call work feels unvalued. Two, a lot of it is low quality. Three, a lot of, we don't have a systematic way of like improving our alarms. We're not practicing continuous improvements. Four, there's too many people on call. And five, like we're not making this a great experience. It's just like something that we tolerate and it's pretty crummy. And so from then we started to design something and we had a working group. Uh, I wasn't actually the lead in the working group. I was kind of a contributor to it from the very start, but then kind of quickly became the spiritual leader. <laughs> uh, kind of <laughs> ran it for many, many years and I'm certainly the public face of it. So, so, but that process of like writing down the problems and then kind of looking at a group, figured out a design at that point. And so it's equivalent to like the way we would come up with a technical design to uh, satisfy a problem statement. We came up with a design which wasn't a million miles away. The volunteer thing was definitely part of it from day one. We wanted people to opt in because we felt that would have the, you know, allow us to have fungibility of engineers. We could remove the burden of having to figure out who could do on call and what teams they could be on, stuff like that. We wanted to minimize the number of people on call. And so one was a great number. <laughs> it's as small as you can get. Uh, I don't think we completely turn off on call. And then things like our compensation structure and things like just came out of like what we saw being done elsewhere in the company and the way the company approached things like time off in lieu and kind of other kind of other perks or other kind of ways of uh, how we thought about compensation. And it pretty much came out of that. And one of the thing in one of the interesting things we did at the start was the process of moving the alarms over to on call so uh, or to the the shared on call team so we um put all of our alarm definitions for they're all datadog or cloudwatch basically and there we we got them all into terraform definitions and we decided okay you, you have to You've, but you have to do a thing here. It's like to move the alarm over to the on-call team uh, and to like to to get rid of it as such. We you have to do a physical thing. It was like you're gonna have to copy some code, like copy some configuration. You're gonna have to, to open up a pull request. Uh, we're gonna review the pull request and we're gonna ask you the same questions over and over. It's gonna be like, where's the runbook? Can we see the runbook? Can we make sure that anyone can follow the runbook? And then is this alarm actually worth getting somebody out of bed at three a.m. and does this alarm occur at like, is it actionable? Is it high enough level that it captures real customer impact? And the actual process of doing this resulted in most alarms getting thrown out. Because it turned out most alarms weren't actually very good. You just kind of build them up over time, especially when it's very easy to create alarms. And that in itself was like just an accidental process or an accidental thing we stumbled across as making, like adding a bit of friction to creating the alarm or like moving alarms over resulted in huge amounts of alarms getting destroyed. Uh, you know, we had good support from leadership as well. They were absolutely bought into this process of having one person on call. And so we we set targets for teams, like you're going to have to get all your alarms over by this date and write all your run books. And so it was real work that we scheduled. At, you know, we had to follow up with teams, make sure they were getting the work done and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately it did get done and we celebrated when uh, different teams got all their stuff done and got set up. We have changed definitely changed and adapted a bunch of things over time we had we had expectations maybe or like we we expected we it might not be sustainable and so we thought that maybe we might have to hand alarms back if teams weren't doing things about them or if it was too noisy or required too much expertise like 
maybe your Elasticsearch clusters will keep melting down and you would need uh, deep Elasticsearch expertise to, to figure things out. But we kind of just got away with it. And so we never kind of had to resort to a bunch of the kind of, I guess, fallbacks that we kind of designed were building these things. And ultimately, we kind of threw them away. It's like we we stopped having escalations designed the way we thought we would and made things a bit more ad hoc just from experience and building confidence in, in the on-call setup. And yeah, we've changed how we've how we review alarms and just how we uh, onboard engineers, like just made processes a bit more efficient and stuff like that. But ultimately, the design has stayed pretty solid from, I guess, like whatever it is, five years ago since we started doing this. And I think we got the fundamentals right at the start. I think it was that process of writing down what the main problems are, kind of agreeing with them, and then designing something. It worked out really well for us. It's such a strange concept to so many, based on my observation, of starting with a problem definition. You know, we, we, we start with a solution and then figure out what problems we <laughs> In the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mentioned before that like Intercom's a product company. It's like this. This is one of those things that if you want to get anything done at Intercom, you kind of have to have a product mindset to it, or there's you use the kind of product development process to go about uh, building it because if you don't, it just looks a bit weird and people are sus- suspicious of it. And, you know, we have a way of working and it works for our company. And so, yeah, I think that fitted for us. It kind of fitted in to, we were able to show that we were doing the work in a way that was consistent with how Intercom works. And I think we got like reasonably good results that was consistent with like the way we think about the company and our uh, standards we want to bring to things like on-call and, and beyond. I have two more lines of questions. Yes. I know we're getting close to an hour. Are you, do we have time to keep going? All good for me. Cool. So my first the first thing I want to ask about is how would you advise someone who doesn't have on-call or maybe they have a terribly broken on-call uh, system right now? What should they do? And, and specifically, I'm looking at like, what do you, how do you develop these runbooks? I mean, if you don't have any or if, if what you have is terribly, you know, it's missing half of the stuff that might go wrong. And, you know, maybe you're a small uh, related. Let, let's just start with that. Then I'll ask my second one follow up. How, how do you start with that? How do you, how do you develop the runbooks and how do you get the system in place if you, if you have a broken or non-existent system to start? Yeah. We, not all of our runbooks are perfect. I, I know it's shocking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, it, it is hard sometimes to like, figure out a great runbook for a given alarm. Like mm-hmm. Even if you might have high confidence that something is broken, it might be hard to know exactly what to do. We've ended up probably leaning on runbooks that are like kind of generic, like high, high level-ish. So that will count towards solving a lot of problems in a certain system. And so they so we've used the same runbook effectively for like many, many different alarms in, in a certain part of, of the system. And when it came to like making the alarm or runbooks as well, sometimes like a process that worked well was just sitting down with someone who solved a problem in that area recently, like responded to an alarm, asking them what they did, writing that down <laughs> and just going with that. Like, and it doesn't even need to be precise. It's just like a start of like, okay, which dashboards did you check? How did you know it was MySQL all along? And so we, so rather than getting something that, that we're like guaranteed to have good outcomes, we give like general guidance, like check here, check here, check here. And so that, that was, that's, and that's typically enough to get started as well. And um, I think what we, because our, we use a lot of self-healing systems and that's part of our cloud setup. And, you know, we do have like automation at different points and that can kick in and kind of imp- make things better, like good auto scaling policies and things like that and stuff. So we tend to lean on automation in many places where 
it, you might in other places have to like have a list of things that you need to go off and do if you're going to recover from a situation. You know, you're going to have to start replacing hosts and do all sorts of stuff. They're not really things that we we have to do in our environment. But I can see why, like you, like in many environments, and say maybe more static environments, maybe more physical networks and hosts and things like that, you would need kind of more detailed runbooks. But we tend to get away with uh, higher level indication in, indications, and uh, you know we try and, and we've been rolling out SLOs, trying to start with like as high level customer facing metrics as possible, and then kind of give indications from there. And we use tools like Honeycomb and things like that to s- explore our our operational data and to like set somebody up with information and guidance rather than giving them exact things to do. And so that works well enough in our environment. It's it's not always perfect. People don't always know exactly what to do. There is occasions when we miss certain things, like we could have just done a redeploy at this point to just to get back to steady state or, you know, that database should have been failed over or whatever, but that's been good enough. And so we, I guess we don't put a huge amount of emphasis on Runbook being perfect, high level, quick, and reflecting what's actually done as opposed to like people thinking that's what, what's done in response to an alarm. And um, I assume you update those Runbooks frequently as you discover deficiencies or changes in procedures and stuff like that. Yeah, that, that comes out of like when we run, when we, when we follow the Runbooks in, in the, as an alarm fires, we open a tracking issue for every single time event and the engineer will write down what they're doing and yeah. the team who owns the runbook and stuff will will only let them close that issue if any kind of problems have been resolved or and you know it might be a collaborative thing maybe we'll suggest some stuff that uh, should be put in or the engineer found some stuff that should be put in or whatever uh, or the team updated with new information uh, about the system as well but so yeah it's a, it's a, it's definitely a continuous improvement thing and it's also better to get started with something higher level or, or something like okay, and then kind of improve and hone it over time. So another question related to getting started, how big of a team do you think you need to have? I mean, if you're a small startup, maybe you're just two engineers to start with. How do you, is it appropriate to do something like this? Or do you have to reach a certain critical mass before you can start bothering about this? Or yeah, how do you, how would you approach that? I know that's not quite your situation, but what wisdom can you provide in that area? Yeah, I think if you're pretty small, it's, it's going to end up being either like better efforts or you'll have a small number of people on call anyway like yeah if you're in a small startup it's going to be like the technical co-founder who's on basically on call 24 7 or whatever and i think the the guidance i give is like just be skeptical of the the value of like low level alarms use the highest possible alarm that that can indicate real customer problems or like likely customer problems and practice continuous improvements, like re- review stuff as it comes in, tune them, tune alarms as needed, but default to like turning alarms off and trying to minimize the, the so- number of sources of, of alarms for these things. Cause I think that the habit you get into is like, and it's, you know, it seems like you're doing a good job and you kind of, you are in many ways. It's like just adding alarm for, everything uh, in an outage and you know well we need it on the, C- the database cpu and select latency and uh, of course like if this churn in the fleet or whatever you know you can just add a lot of alarms for what are important things but ultimately that all that noise can kind of slow you down and give you bad signals or or can be represented in things like dashboards or other ways of exploring those kind of events rather than just having a million alarms go off i find like the lower quality stuff is is are the kind of like low signal uh, things like say CPU on a database where like you can be just chasing blips all day and stuff. So so I think I like like 
you know, the current vogue uh, around SLOs and just trying to tr- to look at it from as high a level kind of customer facing perspective as possible and going after those and giving, you know, the operators, the people who run the systems, high level guidance as to how, like, whether it's meeting business needs and then giving them the tools to explore and giving them guidance and to explore and kind of go after good fixes for for the problem as opposed to like just chasing their tails on on a million <coughs> different alarms. Nice. I have one last question. Sure. What are the biggest problems you see with your current system? Save this tricky question for the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do put a lot of value in like doing the same job for a long time. <laughs> like you get really good at it. And we we move people through the on-call thing. And I think that's got great outcomes for the like engineers at Intercom and just, like their how people are retent things like retention and and uh, learnings and stuff like that. But you do see a lot of the same lessons getting learned frequently. You know, if you treat it as a learning, if you look at it from the learning point of view, it's like it's great. But if you're obsessed about getting your SLA or your response times or your uh, mean time recoveries down, you know, it's it's a factor in that. Like we're we're gonna have slower responses from the fact that we are bringing in people who mightn't even be like doing ops jobs or operations type jobs in that much in their role at Intercom, or like we'll have backgrounds in those kind of areas and they can get stuck. You know, they tend to get stuck in common ways. And so we, we help them try and train them up and stuff like that. But, uh, so yeah, if, so if I think that, that, that's, that's a, that's a known problem, but I think it's like something that we're happy to, to take into account and happy to, to, to exist. But that, like wouldn't suit every environment. And mm-hmm. yeah, if you're completely obsessed with getting like being time to recovery and, the, and like just those kind of things down, like shaving a minute off here and stuff like that, you want like you want more full time kind of uh, operations focused folks in those kind of roles of where they're doing that in their nine to fives as well as kind of out of hours as well. So mm-hmm. so we do have this like deliberate brain drain on the team that does kind of does and can contribute to maybe slightly slower uh, resolution times. But we think we mitigate that with like continuous improvement and process kind of management and kind of learnings and stuff like that. So I think it's worth it for us. But, you know, that's coming from a B2B SaaS kind of view of the world as well. So. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Great. I'm out of questions. I'm ready to go start uh, an on-call team now. (laughs) (laughs) which which actually is probably not at all far from what i'll be doing in the next couple months (laughs) (laughs) oh that's right yeah cool i've done it before but yeah there's some good insight here this will this will help me do it even better next time yeah definitely some great lessons to take away from this conversation this has been incredibly insightful Super. Cool. How do, we, get, uh, how do people get a hold of you if, if yeah. they're interested in, in if, they, if they have questions that I didn't think of? It's, <laughs> it's impossible, but just in case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not a prolific Twitter user, but I do check it every day and stuff. And I will pop up, uh, especially when, you know, maybe there's something from Charity Majors about on call or something like that. So I do pay attention to the the topic. So yeah, I'm, I'm at uh, Brian underscore Scanlon on Twitter. Um, I'm probably relatively easy to Google and you can probably find my LinkedIn uh, pretty quickly as well. I've also talked about on call a few times 
And there's some videos online. So I've got a presentation, got a blog post, and I plan to be doing more about this stuff as well. I kind of realized that to change the world, you need to talk the same, like give the same message out over and over. And I think we've got a good on-call story and I don't think it's fixed globally yet. So uh, I do intend to kind of talk more about the topic, but there's some talks available and yeah, just just Google Brian Scanlon on-call and you'll find some pretty good stuff. Awesome. Right on. Well, should we roll into some picks? Sounds good to me. I, you know, I'm ready. All right. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Let's hear it. So I'm listening to an audiobook uh, that talks about burying skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's most of my Almost. job, I think. It, it's, it's actually, right? uh, so, and, and I say that joking, but it's actually kind of true. So if you're a fan of books or movies like The Godfather, you'll love this because th- it's called Mafia Prince. Inside America's Most Violent Crime Family and the Bloody Fall of La Cosa Nostra. So it's the true story of the Philadelphia mob back in the 70s and 80s. And one of the guys uh, who, who helped write the book, I believe, Philip Leonetti, uh, turned. He decided he, wa- he wasn't into murdering people anymore and burying skeletons. <laughs> and uh, became an informant for the FBI and helped take down huge numbers of these people. So uh, it's, told, it's told from the first person uh, uh, from his point of view, from like eight years old, when he like worshipped these mob gangsters because they were his family, and you know he, you know he grew. And when you're eight years old, you're impressionable. And it goes through. I'm about halfway through right now, but it's it's great storytelling. The audiobook is is told with a American Italian accent, so it just sounds like you're listening to Tony Soprano or something like that. And <laughs> right, on. Uh, so it's good storytelling. It, it it is, I will say, violent. Um, I mean, it's a book, so you, it, but it, there's some graphic descriptions of some murders. So if that's not your thing, don't don't listen or read. But if that is your thing, it's a highly recommended book. It's uh, again Mafia Prince by Philip Leonetti, Scott Bernstein, and Christopher Graziano. I hope I said that correctly. So check that out. They'll uh, they'll let you know if you didn't. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> they'll let my family know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. Brian, what have you got for us? Sure. So I've picked a a YouTube series, I guess. I don't know what the, the kids call these things these days, but the so I enjoy things like uh, solving logistical problems and uh, travel and big engineering feats like airplanes. And so I'm, I've kind of paid attention to the aviation industry and I came across this series that um, it's being actively developed at the moment. Uh, it's called Cockpit Casual. It's made by the name of the channel on YouTube is Speed Tape Films. And it is put together by um, folks who work for this company who effectively go around the world moving planes from place to place. So, you know, the majority of planes get scheduled uh, owned by airlines or like leased by airlines. And do regular kind of trips with passengers. But from time to time, planes need to get moved around from between leasers and into storage, especially over COVID and things like that. And so 
uh, this company, they, this is their job. They basically provide expertise and, and pilots who can basically fly any plane and, uh, they look after the, the logistical problems around planning how to get planes from A to B and just look after the job for the airlines and lessors. So they don't have to be supplying their own pilots and figuring out all those kind of logistics and stuff. So yeah, it came out. I think it started about a year ago. They just have taken huge amounts of footage like around uh, just like on selfie sticks and on GoPros and the planes. And so it's a mix of like travel. They'll kind of walk you through the different places they end up. Then like technical information with the airplanes that they're kind of dealing with and like routing information and all these kind of like logistical problems that they they have to deal with. Um, and then there's like great resilience built into like their, how they have to approach this work because there'll be like, flying in like bringing say a plane from australia to uh, europe or something making like it's a 737 making numerous stops sometimes there'll be food available at the airport when they're doing a fueling stop sometimes there's not so they have to have like a bag of food available just in case they get stuck they they run like they work like really really long hours in terms of like they're not they don't they're not subject to the same regulations that a, a regular pilot would be uh, in an airline would have to adhere to and stuff so it's about like you know, it's hard work. It sounds like it's, you know, similar to on call, you know, uh, but the, it's really well put together. Footage is great. It was great, like during lockdown era as well, just like to kind of fantasize about traveling as well. So it's great to kind of explore <laughs> the world with these folks. There's really good music. It's a lot of jazz. I think, uh, one of the, the, the main guy's father is in the jazz band. So they use a lot of jazz music in that as well. And they're enjoyable and they just go through like interesting places, just a weird job. And cool plane stuff as well. So yeah, I highly recommend it if you're into travel planes and weird logistical problems. I'm gonna have to check it out. That just sounds too cool not to watch. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, my pick is gonna sound incredibly lame compared to the two that y'all had. So this week I was gonna pick, I've been working with some smart contracts on the Ethereum network. And I've actually been doing this for several years now, but I used this last week product or a platform called Third Web, thirdweb.com. And it just blew me away at how easy and efficient they made it to deploy Ethereum contracts out to the network. Super cool. They've got, there's a, a lot of things that are kind of like routine things now in smart contract development, like ERC20 contracts or voting contracts or different things like that. And they've got them pre-built for you so you don't have to write them yourself. They're audited, tested, and then the p- deployment was just a breeze. So that's my pick for the week. Nice. Yeah. And that sounds like an episode. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a good time. Until next time. All right. All right we'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.